parents have to reflect on their own insecurities, their own discomforts, and push through that and figure out how to be okay that that's your experience and this is what you bring to the table, but, but how are we willing to shift that and learn how to grow? Inform, educate, advocate. This is your source for all things early childhood. From nurturing healthy development to overcoming behavioral challenges and recognizing mental health needs. Welcome to Centering Kids, advice from the experts at the Florida Center for Early Childhood. Hi, and thank you for joining us for Centering Kids, early childhood advice from the experts at the Florida Center for Early Childhood. I'm your host, Kristen Tyson. And as someone who advocates professionally for early childhood support and a parent of two myself, I am thrilled to bring you information about today's topic. Are children really as resilient as we think? So today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Christy Skogland, who is the CEO of the Florida Center for Early Childhood. Christy has over 25 years of experience in early childhood development with a specialty in infant and early childhood mental health. She has been with the Florida Center for most of her career, moving up into various leadership roles and becoming CEO in 2020 which was of course an interesting year to take the reins of an organization, but so far so good it seems. Also in 2020, Christy received one of the state's first endorsements as an infant mental health expert from the Florida Association of Infant Mental Health, which she recently joined as a board member too. So welcome Christy. Thank you so much for having me today. So before we get started, I just want to note that today's podcast is sponsored by Sunset Automotive which has 13 full-service dealerships representing 18 different manufacturers in Sarasota, Venice, and Bradenton. It has been family-owned and operated for over 40 years and has a commitment to community that they show by contributing to local nonprofit organizations like the Florida Center. Um, Our listeners can learn more at www.sunsetsautogroup.com. All right, so let's get to it. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about how you got into the early childhood field, Christy, and maybe what you feel is important about it. Sure. So when I tell this story, I like to tell um, folks that I actually got into it by accident. I, um, I needed a job. I was young, and I just I moved here um, starting a graduate program, and I, uh, I got hired at what was then the Child Development Center and is now the Florida Center for Early Childhood. I um, had no idea that I was going to eventually be the CEO of an $8 million a year company, but here I am. And I think most people that are in the field will tell you that once you get bit by the early childhood bug, the infant mental health bug, or the early childhood development bug, you really, um, you either love it or you, or you don't. And I fell in love with it. So um, I there's so much that happens in the early years. There's so much growth, so much opportunity. Um, so many ways to, to change and impact the trajectory for children and their families that it just, uh, I never get tired of it. I never get tired of talking about it or uh, training or uh, mentoring, coaching new clinicians. So I just, I feel like there's so much to do in, in the uh, early childhood years. So I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I love that. That's awesome. And I know just from, you know, the time I've spent with you, I've gained so much knowledge about early childhood development. The, the one thing that I think people may be wondering is when we talk about infant mental health, I mean, I immediately picture 
uh, an intimate office with soft lighting and a scholarly looking gentleman sitting across from a baby lying on a couch who's babbling away. Um, you know, the stereotypical mm-hmm. kind of therapy. Right. But that's not what we're talking about, right? No, no. We're not talking about um, sitting a baby on a couch and asking them how they're feeling and how they would like the rest of their life to look. Um, when we talk about babies and early childhood mental health, we are really talking about relationships. Um, babies, as they say in my world, do do not. Um, babies don't exist without a person. There's no such thing as a baby. Babies grow in the context of the relationships in which they are um, connected to every day. So it's important for us to recognize how important parents are and caregivers are in the in the lives of young children. Um, the, the work that we do as infant mental health clinicians really focuses on the relationship and helping parents to recognize what they bring to the relationship with their child while also helping them recognize uh, how their child is growing and developing and ways that we can intervene. In, in infant mental health, we see a lot, of, a lot of families with a lot of different challenges. They bring a lot, a lot of different stories to, um, to the table. And it's our job to kind of help families unpack that and um, help them work through whatever they're bringing to the table. Many families bring um, trauma to the table. They bring um, their own experiences of, of um, poor parenting um, in their own childhood, um, their own histories of trauma, abuse, neglect, and we have to help them unpack that as it relates to their journey of becoming a parent and what they want to be for their, their child. So how would someone know if they or their child needs infant mental health or early childhood mental health? So it's often, you know, in this, in early childhood work, we say, when in doubt, check it out. So if there is, um, especially in the first year of life, if a baby is having trouble um, sleeping, feeding, um, soothing. Those are all indications that a parent can reach out for help in those in that first year. It doesn't necessarily mean that the parent is that there's anything going on with the parent per se. There could just be an uh, an issue with the child and, and a parent needing to understand how to read their baby. Um, we could also see a parent who might be depressed or may feel like they're not nurturing their baby in the way that they might want to and feel like, man, I, I really need to. Um, get a handle on this or, or reach out for help because I'm not uh, I want my baby to feel loved but I'm not feeling that natural inclination oftentimes those moms are um, already linked to services and some of those um, work workers people working with those families a lot of home visitors will refer family those moms and families in particular to do some infant mental health work mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting thinking about the, the difference, even just in those first few years with a baby and like you were talking about the um, feeding, soothing, sleeping, and then even a toddler. Are there certain um, areas that therapists maybe are more um, expert in than another? Or is it all pretty much if you're an infant early child mental health, that you can do it all? Um, pretty much. That's why I, I, I've always said being an infant mental health clinician requires so such a, a range of knowledge because you have to not only know what they call psychopathology or diagnosing and mental health disorders, but you then have to translate that into the early childhood arena. You have to understand the whole child. So if you're doing infant mental health, 
you have to understand healthy trajectory uh, of development, you have to understand um, childhood mental health, you have to understand adult mental health because you're bringing in the parent and the child together as a duo in that relationship, what we call in this work a dyad. And so you have to kind of know adult mental health, ch children's mental health, family systems, what, how do families work within a system, and then understanding child development. It's, it's, a, big, um, it's a big job for an infant mental health clinician, and, and yeah. it requires a lot of specialized training. I can definitely see that, yes. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about mental health, especially with children and babies, a lot of times people will just sort of dismiss that as an issue. You know, if there's a traumatic event, they say, oh, they won't even remember. He or she is too young. They'll, they'll, you know, it won't even be something that they'll um, re remember as they get older. Is that really the case? So there's um, a famous uh, psychiatrist, researcher, Bessel van der Kolk, who says the body keeps the score. And it's so true. And that is really, um, it, it refers to young children and how they are, even adults and older children, and how the trauma impacts their, their body. It is ingrained in our body. It is in our, in our brains, even before we have words to make sense of it. And with young children, the research actually shows that if you have a, a household, let's say a house where there's domestic violence and you have a baby and you have a three-year-old and a 10-year-old, the baby is actually impacted the most because their brain is only developed so much. They don't have the cognitive awareness to be able to make sense of it in their mind and have the words to say, hey, I know this is going to calm down or I know in a few minutes, you know, dad's going to leave the house. They don't have the words to make sense of it. All they know is that this is affecting their body. They're hearing loud noises. They don't have words yet to make sense of it. So it affects their body in a way that causes them to have reactions and triggers. So as they get older, it's important for parents and those caring for the young child to recognize that this trauma occurred. They may not remember it in their brain, but their body remembers it. So to be able to put words to that experience as the child gets older is really important. To say something like, you know, when you were a little baby, you heard a lot of fighting and this is what happened. In this work as clinicians, we do something that, that you know, we like to call speaking the unspeakable. We say the things that, that children already know. They know that they're responding in a certain way. They know that what they've seen oftentimes, they, they've already experienced it. We're not saying anything that they don't already feel and know. We're just putting it out there and providing a safe place for children to be able to explore those big feelings and emotions. Hmm. Wow, I really had no idea about all of that. But I mean, it makes sense. And, and I have heard that there is, and I've experienced, you know, the physical effects of like that fight or flight kind of thing when something startles you or something happens. So I can only imagine as a baby, they're experiencing something similar as well. And that just if it keeps happening, then that really has an effect on them. It really does. And parents just have to, have to, you know, what we teach or help parents learn is how to respond to that. There's something that the um, Harvard Center on the Developing Child mentions as um, a concept called the serve and return. So children are always serving us, you know, in terms of we think of tennis, the, here comes the, the ball and we're going to hit it with the tennis racket. So the child is the ball. They're serving, you know, the ball. And then they, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to it? And what are we giving them back? Are we holding their attention and recognizing what they're paying attention to? Um, are we encouraging them? How are we 
what are we doing in response to what, what we're being given by the child? That's really, really important. Mm -hmm. I was uh, just thinking the other day as I was out at a park and I saw this, you know, young family and there was a, a little toddler who had fallen down and was just, you know, reaching up knowing that mom or dad was going to come and pick them up. Um, and I think that was part of you know, a recognition for me of like, that is something that's healthy, that understanding, that comfort that you know that the adult is going to be there, but not every child has that. No, not every child has that. And that's that, you know, that's the unfortunate reality that some children are not born into homes where they have parents who are naturally inclined to be responsive. Um, emotional availability is super important um, when dealing with young children. And that cumulative experience of not having a parent emotionally available is trauma. It is traumatic for children to have feelings and not have anyone respond to those emotions and feelings. Uh, and over time, we will see the reaction, the, the, the end result of that. And um, teaching parents how to be emotionally available, that's not always easy. That's especially if we have upbringing where we were told to not share our feelings or we didn't get someone, have someone responding to us with that um, openness to be comfortable in sharing feelings. So parents have to reflect on their own insecurities, their own discomforts and push through that and figure out how to be okay that that's your experience and this is what you bring to the table, but, but how are we willing to shift that and learn how to grow in our ability to meet our children's needs because children need what they need and we, but we come to the table with what we, you know, what we bring. So how do we, do those always match? And sometimes they don't, but we have to help parents see that we're here to help. We're here to help them shift um, their way of being in a way to, to support their child's needs. Hmm. Hmm. You know, as a parent, I feel like it's tough to know sometimes what the best approach is or if there's a right thing to do. And even if you have all the supports in the world, you know, spouse, family, friends, without other people to lean on, it can be really overwhelming, especially if you're struggling in some way, you know, with, with addiction, mental health issues or relationships. I mean, it's, it's almost like a um, can be a cycle, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, having those natural supports are super important. If you feel like you don't have anyone to help you, you, you there, there's no hope. And one of the things that um, infant mental health clinicians do is instill hope. That's the cultural value of the work that we do is instilling hope in the darkest places, in the places where families feel like there's no hope. How am I possibly going to move forward? There's always a way to move forward, and, and we're there to help them see that. Even in cases where we have parents whose children have been removed from their care, and even moving through the case, and they end up losing custody or, or rights to their children. The children are going to be adopted or remain with some other caregiver. We can still instill hope in those moments where it feels like all is lost, and that's our job. That's our our, our job as um, mental health clinicians and working with um, parent, young children and their parents is to really help them find hope no matter the circumstance, no matter what their circumstances are. Obviously making referrals and connecting them to resources, helping them broaden their scope um, on how to move forward, but we always have to instill hope. Mm, yeah, that's um, really some amazing in insight, I think. Um, and I think on that note, we can take another minute to thank our sponsor today, who is Sunset Automotive Group. 
and they have um, 13 different dealerships in Sarasota, Venice and Bradenton, family owned and operated, and um, they have a commitment to community that they show by contributing to local nonprofit organizations like the Florida Center. And our listeners can find out more at sunsetautogroup.com. So getting back to the topic of infant and early childhood mental health and whether children are as resilient as we think, um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is trauma. And I feel like that may be a buzzword these days, you know, being trauma informed and having experienced trauma. What exactly um, does that look like in, in early childhood? I think you've mentioned, you know, having a kind of volatile environment being trauma. Um, can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So trauma is really the perception of the individual, right? What someone, one person may be, what may perceive as trauma, somebody else may not. With children, we often think of trauma as something where um, a child has experienced um, abuse, neglect, um, being in a household with domestic violence. Um, Those are clear traumas. Other traumas can be car accidents, dog bites, um, a home, again, where there's cumulative experiences of, of somebody not being emotionally available, just kind of dismissing you, not paying attention to you, that kind of gone parent, if you will. Um, those are all examples of trauma. Um, but a divorce, seeing your parents divorce, that can be traumatic for children. A move, uh, military children deal with traumas all the time. So those are, those are some examples of traumas. Um, some are more obvious, but some absolutely have major impact on mm. the child. Mm. Okay. Well, I know something that's probably on the minds of a lot of our listeners, and I know has, has been on mine as well, is um, wondering about the impact of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and if or how that is going to um, affect children and, and how that might manifest itself. Do you have any insight on that whole situation? You know, I, w- I wish I could predict the future. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of hypothesis on how this is going to look for children moving forward. It's definitely going to impact them for sure. It's stressful for adults. You know, the, the parents that um, have experienced loss of job, housing, food insecurity, all of those things, certainly the children are feeling it. There's no way that they're not. Um, one thing I can say is that, you know, children who don't have answers to their worries or their concerns are going to be anxious and amped up. So as best as we can, as parents, help keep our children informed, of course, developmentally appropriately, um, how, as to what's going on, how, uh, what's happening in our, in our community, in our state, in our country. Children already hear about the coronavirus. They already know what's going on. If we don't give them the facts in a way that they can understand it, they're going to come up with their own ideas of what's happening. So it's important for us to be honest with them and speak about things and just, you know, keeping it out of their lives and out of their mind is not really um, healthy because they already know it's there. So we just have to be comfortable sharing things with them in a way that they can understand it and know that we're here to answer their questions. Just having a safe space where they can come to us with questions is really important. So I know you can't really, you know, give advice um, just generally, but I, you mentioned being anxious and I feel like, you know, with my own kids and, and myself, you know, I, I can see that and, and feeling that way and washing your hands like almost obsessively and worrying about things. But how can we try to um, subdue that a little bit or counter it? Yeah, how we are is really important, you know, having a balance. 
and not being so far one way or the other. Having, yes, it's important to be safe. Yes, this is how it's transmitted. We need to be smart. We need to wash our hands. But how we are, we need to keep our, keep our own fears and insecurities in check so we're not transferring our own worries and insecurities and, and fears onto our children because they look to us to see how they should respond and react and feel about things. Young children absolutely develop and, and take on our perspective. They don't, at, that, at, young, at a young age, they don't have the ability to have their own perspective. You know, we're not talking about teenagers who will challenge you. These are young kids and they really rely on us to really help them know how to feel about things. Are there signs that maybe educators might be able to see, um, you know, camp counselors, things like that, as, as we start to get back into a normal type of routine? Yeah, I mean, the obvious behaviors are, are, are big. You know, how children are uh, behaving, beha behaving um, with their bodies is something that we're going to notice for sure. Kicking, biting, those kinds of things. But also, um, the children that are super quiet, that don't seem to have a voice, that are a little more um, subdued or depressed, if you will, we, we definitely don't want to miss those, those kiddos either. So just paying attention. Children will tell you what's going on. Their behavior is definitely a sign of something big. It, it absolutely has meaning. Okay, great. Well, this was all excellent information. And I think maybe we discovered the answer to a question that children become resilient when they are loved and nurtured and when they feel safe. Um, but sometimes families and parents just need a little extra help. So it's great that the, the Florida Center is, is around to help and other agencies too. So um, I think we're, we're all set for today, Christy. I hope to have you back again soon because there are so many other topics that we could delve into, um, but and you're just a wealth of knowledge. So I hope our listeners will come back and, and check out some more episodes for great information on ways that we can help children become centered in healthy development. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Centering Kids. You can visit the Florida Center for Early Childhood online at www.thefloridacenter.org to learn more and subscribe to this podcast. Have comments or suggestions for a show topic? Email us at podcast at thefloridacenter.org. Thanks again for joining us for Centering Kids, where early childhood experts give you tips and tools to help center children, foster their healthy development, and build stronger families.